This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Earlier this week, a video went viral of an incident at a Mississauga walk-in clinic. A woman had started demanding that a white doctor treat her son. Uh, Here is a clip of that video and what went on in that walk-in clinic. Please see a white doctor. It's only available after four. If you're not, so you're saying in the whole entire building there isn't one white doctor? Uh, your kid has to be seen by a pediatrician. Okay, so the, you're telling me that my kid has chest pains. He's going to have to sit here until four o'clock. Can I see a doctor, please, that's white? Wow. Uh, the sad part is this happens more than you think it does. To talk more of all about all of this, Culvinder Gill is with us, President Concerned Ontario Doctors, and on the line with us now. Hello, Culvinder. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Talk to us. Tell us about Concerned Ontario Doctors. Um, well, um, we are a grassroots um, advocacy group um, that has been um, highlighting uh, uh, oh the winds of government cuts and also um, trying to advocate for patients and for physicians over, over the past few years. All right. Disturbing incident, uh, which we've just played uh, the audio of. What are your thoughts of this? Um, sadly, this is um, something that is uh, not new. Um, um, a racism in, um, ha- as it does happen in our in our country, has been happening um, for physicians um, in our country uh, for the past s- several decades. Um, um, it's it's sadly something that the system could previously ignore and and simply turn turn a blind eye to. But now, because of social media, um, it is getting much needed public awareness and um and and is allowing for dialogue on this uh so safe to say this happens a lot more than the public thinks it does correct sadly yes uh do we have any idea on how often it does happen or is there any data collected on any of this um uh, there's been no data here in canada um in the states um uh, they did a, a survey um uh, out of the new york medical school last year and they found that out of all of the medical students um, or the majority had either witnessed or, or themselves personally experienced um, um, comments, or derogatory comments, um, abuse, or um, hate or directed at them because of their race. Uh, should we be keeping track? Because obviously if you don't have that data, it's pretty hard to come up with a solution. Uh, should we be keeping track of this sort of thing? I think it's so systemic that it's, it's quite difficult to keep track of. And I think... Um, Physicians, as in physicians, where um, we we try our best to try to provide care for the patient in terms of duty of care, and I think what physicians want to do, rather than attempting to to keep track of it, is to try to come up with policies in terms of how to allow physicians uh, a safe environment that's actually free from discrimination. Um, so our regulatory college, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, um, which actually regulates all doctors in this province, actually has no policy around this. Um, they um, um, uh, when they were asked about this specific incident, um, uh, they had um, said that uh, they concur with the um, uh, with the uh, existing um, human rights um, or policies that exist in the province that everyone has a has a right to be able to practice free of any sort of 
um, free of any sort of discrimination, but there's no specific policy around patients and doctors. And I think that's something that um, definitely needs to happen. And I think this is something that needs to be taught um, to our trainees as well. Um, um, Going through medical school, this is not something that is actually discussed. Uh, That was my next question. So does this come up at all during study? I guess obviously not. No, we're, um, uh, so we're taught uh, how to deal with aggressive patients, how to uh, de-escalate um, situations uh, which, which can become um, uh, quite aggressive, but not specifically around race. So uh, does this, did this person who, or any of these people, um, and specifically this situation we're talking about, does this person say what the problem is, like why this is an issue? Um, I'm not, um, uh, for this particular incident that happened, I'm not quite certain. I can tell you that once the police had been called, the situation did actually de-escalate, and, and, and the child was actually seen by, uh, by a doctor in that clinic. Uh, so, their, so their medical needs were, were indeed met. Um, I think what is important to recognize and um, important for all Canadians to know is that the vast majority of visible minority physicians in Canada are themselves Canadian, that were born, raised, trained here in Canada. Uh, 35% of Canadian medical um, uh, uh, students about a decade ago were actually visible minorities. And at that time, 20% of our population was actually visible minorities. I think what's uh, um, uh, actually surprising is by 2031, 30% of all Canadians will be non-white and 60% of all Canadians living in Toronto will be non-white. And by that time, the majority of medical students in Canada will be non-white. So the, uh, so uh, patients uh, will most likely be encountering non-white physicians when they need their medical needs met. This is such a bizarre conversation to be having. Um, uh, what should be in such a policy? What, 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 you know, what can we do to stop this? I mean, it just sounds like pure racism. Sadly, it is. Um, I, uh, in, in all other um, working environments, policies do exist um, for the employees to be able to have a safe environment free of any sort of discrimination uh, against their race or gender. And I think the College of Physicians and Surgeons needs to come up with a similar policy and then actually work with our government in, in terms of trying to implement something so that physicians, um, nurses, and actually all healthcare providers uh, feel safe um, when they're providing their duty of care. So again, what can be in such a policy, Calvinder? What, what, what can we do? Uh, what sort of things can be put in place that you know, would, would spare a doctor this sort of thing? Well, presently, um, physicians are not able to refuse care on any grounds right. unless it actually um, uh, goes outside their scope of practice. Mm-hmm. So unless, unless something's outside of the scope of practice of that doctor, uh, they have um, a ethical, legal right, uh, right. Uh, sorry, they have an ethical and, and a legal obligation to provide care for that patient. Um, uh, certainly, the college does say that when when there is a um, circumstances um, that a physician feels threatened, they can certainly remove themselves from that situation. But if if that's an existing patient, it's actually quite difficult to discharge that patient uh, uh, from the physician's practice. Uh, ultimately, is that what needs to be done here? Is that you know sorry that because obviously the fact that uh, you are obligated to treat these people. Uh, and, and they have the right to be treated, clearly they're taking advantage of that. 
so can you see it coming to a point where, you know, clinics will say if this happens, then there's the door, get out? Yeah, I think the college needs to provide guidance on this. I think the college needs to uh, take a firm line that there will be zero tolerance for hate. Uh, there will be zero tolerance for any sort of discrimination towards uh, of physicians, uh, be that uh, their or their race or their gender um, or, or their sexual orientation. I think uh, I, th- I think being a multicultural society, um, uh, we need to be accepting uh, of of the fact that um, those who provide us with care um, during our most vulnerable times will be a, a, an exact a reflection of the demographic of our country. Is this a, a situation in the reverse? You know, here, here, we're certainly hearing of situations in the, one you're, you're, the ones you're speaking of and what happened in Mississauga where someone's demanding a white doctor. Is, do, do we get situations where other ethnic groups walk in and demand the same sort of thing, demand different doctors, demand not to be treated by a white doctor and somebody of their own ethnicity? Does it work both ways? I think it works always, absolutely. I think, uh, I, I, I think it's actually beyond... Or simply race as well. Um, I've had colleagues share that they've actually been, um, been discriminated against by patients because of uh, a perceived accent, or because of, um, or or simply because of their name. Um, I think we need to see beyond uh, this just being about skin color. I think we need to address the bigger issue and and actually allow for complete inclusion. Where do you think this is going to go, Calvinder? Do you think this will just be another 24-hour news cycle for a story like this, or do you think uh, this story has legs and that uh, it, we, we could see change? I certainly hope it does have legs. I certainly hope that the, uh, all these conversations that have started over the past week actually uh, culminate into something bigger that, uh, that will actually help both uh, help and actually empower physicians to be able to provide their patients with the care that they need. How do doctors react when this happens? Um, I mean, is there, you know, I, I would just kind of stand, be standing there stunned. I'd be so astonished that someone had said something. I wouldn't even know what to say. Well, it's extremely disheartening. It's extremely sad. Um, it's extremely hurtful. Um, um, uh, having, uh, especially speaking from my own experiences, um, having spent my entire life in Canada, having been trained here, um, uh, having done all of my medical training, which was over a decade long to be able to be a, a subspecialist, uh, uh, to be then, uh, um, hear comments about your people or, uh, go back to where you came from or, uh, other, other comments like that are extremely hurtful because I am Canadian. Do you think this is sort of the last institution where this is allowed to happen? Because like you said, if it was in the workplace or some other situation, I mean, it would be dealt with. I think, uh, I think um, uh, f- for physicians, I think it's one of the few possibly um, where there is not yet a policy that exists. Uh, a lot of nursing and a lot of the frontline staff are covered uh, under under existing hospital policies, but physicians are very unique uh, in terms of um, our our college not having a policy for this. Uh, it's. I also find it fascinating that somebody thinks that when they go into a, a, a center or an institution like this, that somehow this will get them better care in the end. It just seems mind-boggling. Yeah. I think the important thing to also recognize is not to um, address hate with hate. Oftentimes, uh, patients 
uh, or just to play the devil's advocate. Oftentimes, patients who do come across as being quite aggressive and quite violent are, are themselves coming from a, uh, yeah. a, a place of hurt, uh, a place of certain life circumstances. And I think we do need to be cognizant of that, and we do need to approach this with the sensitivity that it requires. Good for you. Um, and I guess we also have to remember they're going into a clinic, they're going into a hospital setting, what have you, they're obviously not feeling well, they're obviously under some sort of duress. I guess that has to play some right. part as well, although that certainly isn't any excuse for this. Right, absolutely. Uh, so where does this go from here? How, what's the next step? Um, well, um, uh, all these types of conversations have been happening here in Ontario and actually have actually started across the country, which I think is quite amazing. Um, having gone through med school and uh, and all my training here in Canada over the past decade, um, none of this was actually openly discussed. Uh, so I'm so I'm hoping that um, that our medical educators um, through through the medical schools now st- actually sit down and start to come up with policies um, in their medical school to allow for teaching around this. And I'm and I'm extremely hopeful that um, oh that uh, oh that the Ministry of Health, working with our college, uh, will be able to come up with policies around this as well. Do you think that this is uh, an educational issue, whether it's training uh, doctors that are that are uh, coming in and how to deal with this, uh, or even patients on what they can and cannot do and what's appropriate and, and right. what isn't appropriate? Is it an education a campaign, or is it is a change of policy needed? Um, I think I, I think once the change of policy happens, and then the education as to what that change in policy is will be made public, and I think that will have. Uh, an impact in terms of how physi- uh, how patients um, treat physicians and how physicians treat patients. Do you think this displays just a greater frustration with the symptom uh, with the system itself, or uh, do you think this is just what it is and that's plain racism? Um, as I said, um, um, uh, with in some circumstances, it does come from a place of hate, and in some circumstances, it does come from a place of vulnerability and. And certainly, it's it's I'm not in my position to judge, and it's not in the position of other physicians to judge. I, in my clinic, I've seen patients that have have actually been um, have actually been prisoners. So they've come in with shackles, with uh, with armed guards, and it's not in my position to mm. be judging them as to what brought them into that life circumstance, but to provide them with the care that they need during that time. Hmm. Dr. Culvinder Gill has been with us, President Concerned Ontario Doctors. Earlier this week, a video went viral of an incident at a Mississauga walk-in clinic where a woman started demanding a white doctor treat her son. Doctor, thank you for the time at Insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Facebook and Twitter, just an absolute glow, uh, especially around the Trump tape thing. I just find this unbelievably amusing that people are falling for this. And, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't care about the politics. I don't care if you're left or right. The man is just nuts when he continually, he has started, an, you know, he, he brought up something that didn't exist. He created a suggestion that something exists that it didn't. And that just triggered a whole other aspect of this investigation and people looking for, like, the only reason he came clean on this is because he was being subpoenaed to deliver the tapes by tomorrow, or today, rather. So he came out yesterday and said, oh, yeah, by the way, can't do that, so uh, there are no tapes. That I know of, anyway. There might Somebody else might be recording things in my office, but I'm not. 
And I, I read you the interesting note from William that said, uh, I don't recall Trump ever explicitly saying he did record Comey. A bit of hinting, but that was it. The mainstream media will say or do anything. I no longer trust them to give the correct time. I ask this question to everyone who thinks like William and Alex and uh, Kevin. Why would Trump do this? Why would Trump allude to there being tapes that don't really exist, that he knows don't exist? Why would he do that? So he would be under even more investigation. So he would draw more attention to himself, be under more scrutiny, turn up the heat on himself. Why would he do that? And none of these people seem to be able to answer this. Kevin writes, well, I believe William. I support William. You remind me, Scott, of people who don't understand the word maybe. You only understand yes or no. When somebody says maybe, you assume yes. That makes you wrong. Trump said there might be tapes, which you don't understand about might. What don't you understand about this is Trump's office? Kevin, do you know if there's tapes made inside your house? Do you know if that sort of antic is going on inside your office? Do you have any reason to believe that? Is there any proof of that? Then why suggest it? Other than to draw more attention to yourself and put yourself under more investigation. I just find it utterly mind-boggling. And what I find even more mind-boggling is that Trump is absolutely brilliant when it comes to appealing to the Williams, the Alexes, and the Kevins of the world because he's got them all hook, line, and sinker. And he spews about fake news. He's created the fake news. He started this whole story. For somebody who's constantly talking about fake news, he created this whole story. It's his fabrication. And his people and him are saying, well, I did this to make sure Comey would tell the truth. Did that work? Did, was Comey's testimony unbelievably complimentary to Trump? Did I miss something here? It's the biggest shell game in the world, and it's amazing how many are falling for it. Unbelievable. All right, let's bring in Michael Trocott, Professor Emeritus of Communication uh, Studies, Political Science Authority on Communication, and, uh, and of course, he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Not too bad. Am, am I supposed to begin by asking you what time it is? <laughs> you know, over and above the logic of this, Michael, what amazes me is he's brilliantly tapped into these people who will buy this stuff. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I, I think that this is based, well... It's based partly on his uh, television experience, you know, and, and the sort of big lead-in. But uh, I think that, you know, one problem with interpretation and discussion of the tweets and the consequences is that there's an underlying assumption that his behaviors 
rational. And, you know, it's not really clear that it is. You, you also read uh, a quote, uh, you, you read a comment from one of your uh, listeners who said, don't you understand the word maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, and so <laughs> while you were speaking, I went and searched for the original tweet. Uh, it, it, it doesn't have the word maybe in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, as I read it, I have to admit it's on CNN. It says, James Comey better hope that there are no, quote, tapes, yeah. end quote, of yeah. our conversations before it starts leaking to the press. That's the tweet, yeah. Yeah. So maybe better means maybe. It's possible. So uh, is Donald Trump the fake news he's accusing everyone else of? I mean, he started this whole charade. None of this even had to happen. Well, I think there are two points here. Um, one of them is that there have been, you know, multiple incidents of fake news initiated by Donald Trump, you know, one of which would be uh, Barack Obama or the Obama administration putting him under surveillance. And the second point is that, uh, you know, within about a year or so, we're going to understand better whether this particular tweet uh, was so ill-considered that it started an investigation that um, put a couple of people in jail. It's almost like setting your own house on fire. And, you know, the people that the notes I'm reading, they it, that seems to be lost on them. Well, uh you know, there's a sense in which he, he's, you know, serving as the Republican president of the United States, but he's also the leader of a movement, uh, you know, an anti-government, anti-establishment movement. Very true. And, uh, you know, these people are a set of uh, true believers, and th- they um, will take him at his word for just about anything that he says. And uh, to the extent that he deals in rumors, and we have research on rumors, uh, uh, how, how, uh, they, how they uh, are spread, who believes in them, uh, how one can counter-argue against them, uh, we know from a theory of what's called motivated reasoning that for people who uh, believe in rumors, their reasoning uh, with regard to counter-arguments to the rumors only strengthens their belief. So uh, the presentation of what people think is uh, factual information to counter a rumor doesn't really uh, serve the intended purpose. It only strengthens the views about the uh, belief in the rumor itself. You can think you can think about this in terms of the uh, Obama birth certificate phenomenon, for example. Even after he produced two different copies of his uh, birth certificate over time, um, there were still large minorities of the American public who thought that he uh, wasn't born in the United States and therefore shouldn't be president of the United States. He, uh, Donald certainly does 
excel, so he feels, or his success has been in the gray area, certainly not black and white. Here's a clip of him on Fox News discussing this whole issue. And my story didn't change. My story was always a straight story. My story was always the truth. But you'll have to determine for yourself whether or not his story changed. But uh, I did not take it. It was a smart way to make sure he stayed honest in those hearings. Well, uh, it wasn't... uh, it wasn't very stupid, I can tell you that. He was, he f- did admit that what I said was right. And if you look further back before he heard about that, I think maybe he wasn't admitting that. So you'll have to do a little investigative reporting to determine that. But I don't think it'll be that hard. I have no idea what he just said. Well, it's, it amazing. A, it's amazing, Michael. It was a kind of a ramble, but I think that, I think that, my interpretation of what he said was, I told you, he told me three times that I was not uh, under investigation. And I smoked him out on that, and he admitted that he told me three times I was not uh, under investigation. And so his interpretation is that by making this significant bluff in the, in, in, in the contents of that tweet, um, he he got the director of the FBI to uh, admit something that he claimed is true. What he ignores in that statement is that there were a lot of consequences of how that information was divulged in, in, in congressional testimony, and that while it may have been true on those three occasions that at the time he was not under investigation, it's pretty clear that he is now. And that's the whole point. Exactly. Is that, you know, so what if he got Comey to say prior to all of this that he was not under investigation, especially with what he said about the tapes? He is now. So how does that, how do people not see past that? Well, again, I think it has to do with, the, you know, true believer nature of yeah. many of uh, many of his supporters. But, you know, he's been described often as a transactionalist or a transactional president because of his uh, familiarity with, you know, making deals. He's always thinking in the short term about what needs to be done to get me to the point I want to be. But one consequence of that is he doesn't seem to have very much uh, midterm or long-term planning Hmm. uh, capability. And so he... He he may have flushed uh, Comey into admitting something that was very important to him without having or paying any attention to the longer-term consequences. So how does this, Michael, change the conversation? I mean, he has talked so long and accused so many of fake news. Now he gets caught in, for all intents and purposes, a lie or certainly suggesting one. How does this change the discussion? Is this a tipping point in any way or just more of the same? Because to me, this seems very obvious now. Well, um, it's, it, it is an inflection point to the extent that uh, Robert Mueller has been appointed as the special prosecutor. And uh, once, you know, his office is set in motion... Uh, including, you know, the work of his staff, um, he is going to be obliged to go to a grand jury. 
and uh, he'll have to present evidence to the grand jury. Um, I, I, I don't think he's in a position, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think he's in a position in which he can say nothing happened. I mean, he, he, he'll have to present evidence, for example, about the possibility of obstruction. And the grand jury will have to come to some conclusion about whether there should be an indictment or not. So eventually we'll get to some evidentiary basis for evaluating a whole series of claims and behaviors. But most people won't be convinced until that happens, and the majority of those people will be convinced by whatever evidence is eventually you know, made public. That being said, uh, how much value will this evidence hold? It seems most of it is in the gray area where it's not legal, but boy, it's certainly not right. <laughs> well, we don't know how much of it's in. The, we don't know how much of it's. In the yeah, gray good area. point. It yeah. isn't. It isn't surfaced yet. What about this, Michael? What about his credibility? Does he have credibility? Cre- clearly, he has credibility among you know, his followers, like I've, I've just read off of social media. But does he have credibility with those? who he needs to have credibility with. Well, the real test of credibility among his followers is going to come with health care reform. I mean, he's, he's made uh, 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 a pretty clear set of statements about what his idea of health care looks like uh, or ought to look like, and none of that or little of it is reflected in the legislation that passed the House or the legislation that is under consideration in the Senate. So if uh, the Republicans, the congressional Republicans, feel compelled to pass a bill, uh, which is still a few steps away, right? The Senate has to pass something. It won't be exactly the same as the House. They'll have to have a conference. They'll have to come to some agreement and so on. It's possible they won't be able to do anything. But... uh, if they pass a, if they pass a bill uh, that they agree upon, and people start losing their insurance, or their rates go up, or people with pre-existing conditions get dropped or priced out of the market, that'll be that'll be the real test because almost nothing he said about Medicare, Medicaid, or about pre-existing conditions, uh, or about lower premiums uh, is going to come true. Why do you think he brought the whole tape issue up yesterday, uh, Michael? Do you think that was because Friday was today was a deadline that he he would be subpoenaed for these tapes? Why, or was some say it was a distraction away from the health care bill? Why do you think he brought this up now after waiting so long to to well? I to think come it, clean? I think it I think it was the calendar. He had to wait till the last minute when it was put up or shut up, and uh, he could have. So he shut up. Well, he, he didn't exactly shut up. He, he, because, he couldn't put up, but he didn't exactly shut up. That's, that's because, what's interesting. Because uh, he still wants to take credit for uh, flushing a confession out of Comey about the three times he told him. Which is irrelevant. Even though it, yes, all, he, all, right. he's, all he's convinced of doing is to get, you know, what I said against Comey was absolutely right, even though at this point it has no more relevance. That's correct. And the whole point of the uh, firing of Comey and the setup for the testimony before Congress was not really about what he told Donald Trump. It was about whether he was 
being pressured to back off the investigation of Michael Flynn. What do you think the White House is now saying about this whole tape issue? How, how do you, what do you think the backroom chatter was on Wednesday night? Well, you'll night? have to tell me what your definition of the White House is. <laughs> Good point. You know, there's, there's a lot of different groups there. Well, right? let's Including talk. Donald Trump. Uh, well, go ahead. Uh, wade through it. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Trump thinks he was exonerated and that the the mention of the tapes was a useful device to get this information out of Comey. The policy people in the White House uh, think the whole tapes uh, thing is was a distraction from his policy agenda. Mm-hmm. And that every time they thought they were going to make some progress or get good coverage for some initiative, that it was... Uh, it was um, overcast by some comment or some disclosure about uh, Comey or the tapes. Um, it's beginning to make, the whole, the whole uh, incident is beginning to make a lot of money for lawyers in Washington mm. as the staff has to lawyer up for the Mueller investigation. It seems, uh, uh, it just seems odd that he wanted Comey to admit that he wasn't under investigation prior to that, but the method he used bringing up the tapes, as a result, he is now under investigation. And, I, I just, I just have a hard, I have a hard time believing or seeing that as a win. <laughs> well, I think that you're still making this mistaken assumption about rationality here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's clear that in a, yeah. a, a, a vast number of areas. In uh, Donald Trump's life, he's a prideful person. And a lot of this behavior initially and subsequently is related to his uh, belief in himself and uh, how he feels he's been mistreated. Do you think this is over now, the whole issue of the tapes? Will it ever come up again? Uh, Yes, it will. Uh, It won't be as big a deal as it might have been, because apparently the tapes don't exist. But he might have to testify under some circumstances about why he made the claim, and uh, he'll have to, uh, in, in effect, present evidence that they don't exist. Will that do more than just create more embarrassment? Will it do little else other than create more embarrassment quickly? Uh, I, I don't think that it will unless it becomes a piece of mm. uh, the obstruction of justice case, right. that this was actually a threat. Michael Traukot has been with us, University of Michigan professor in communication studies and political science. Michael, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, good to, good to chat, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This was fascinating when I saw this on the news uh, the other night. The Department of National Defense has confirmed that a Canadian sniper has beaten the record for the longest sniper kill shot in military uh, history. The soldier uh, deployed uh, to Iraq killed an ISIS fighter at a distance of almost three and a half kilometers. Think about that. And they're thinking and they were saying things like the wind, the heat. The curvature of the earth. 
so many things uh, come into play on making sure that the target is hit. Uh, and it's absolutely amazing to think that this sort of thing could happen. Uh, Steve Torino is here. He's the president of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association and has been an advisor on the firearms file for the government from 1995 to 2014. He is on the line with us now. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Hi, very good. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Thank you for taking the time. What are your thoughts when you first heard this story? I thought that that's a great tribute to our Canadian military and to all Canadians. Uh, and in the firearms community, I know everyone is looking up to that and going, wow, that is just fantastic. I hear we're... previous I, record by 50%. I hear we're pretty good at this as Canadians. We have been for years. Uh, the, the the DCRA was formed in 1867, uh, three years before the uh, National Rifle Association of the States. So we've been doing this a long time, about 150 years. So uh, let's get into this shot. Um, give us the details. Uh, three and a half kilometers. I'm her- I-, I heard that it took 10 seconds for the-, the bullet to arrive at the target? That's my understanding from what I've read in the media. Uh, the bullet is traveling probably at about close to 3,000 feet per second when it leaves the firearm, leaves the rifle, but then it's got to go through the atmosphere. It doesn't have any power behind it except what's been propelling it out of the barrel. By the time it gets to its target, whatever speed that is, uh, depending on the distance, of course, we've got only the distance given to us by the Canadian military, you're looking at about 10 seconds, and it has to fight wind resistance, gravity, the different temperature changes that moves through the air from one part of the desert or whatever area it was in to another, uh, and fight the Coriolis effect, which is the curvature of the earth as it turns. Uh, that's a lot of calculations to do and a lot of, you know, please God type of thing. Uh, I think it's absolutely a great credit to our Canadian military. So in the end of the day, would the, would the, the soldier that fired this shot, would he be surprised that he made this hit? Um, would he view this as luck or uh, in all the planets just correctly aligning for this to happen? Or how much of this is in his control? Uh, the control leaves you when the bullet leaves the barrel. Then whatever you've done before to make it happen depends on what you've done, what your spotter has done with all the calculations in the mini computer that they have, and then you hope that all the uh, wind and everything else is just right. But uh, it takes a lot of training to be able to say, I think it's going to do that, and that's what these guys are doing. When I know it'll do that. When's, when a person like this takes a shot like this, is he taking into account all of those uh, exterior uh, factors? As much as he can, uh, but you can't really know what the wind is like at, uh, or the temperature is like compared to where you are at 3,500 meters away. You have an idea because of all your equipment that you have with you and your training for years of training, but uh, the rest of it is, you know, put it all together and you say, yes, I think it's going to do that because my training tells me that. Uh, how would you verify something like this? How does this get verified? Uh, they have independent verification, usually with the spotter or some other people that are there watching. They're not out alone on this. They're not individuals out alone. They're right. out on, you know, there's a team out there, and everyone is watching. How would how would the military have reacted to this? How would they, whether you're on site there or even the day after when news of it breaks? That I think you'd have to ask the military exactly what their you know initial reaction was, but I think they'd be very very pleased for them to actually uh, come out and publish this data. Is a great credit to all the training that the Canadian soldiers have received, better than anybody else in the world, from what I can see from this. 
Are you surprised we did hear about this? No, I don't think we're surprised. I think Canada is very proud of the fact that it does a really fantastic job of training its people uh, with the resources available, whatever that might be. I think that the individual uh, soldier uh, puts 110% effort into it, puts his heart into his work, and wants to be the best there is for his country and to do the best job he can for Canada. Talk about the equipment he would have used to, to do this. Uh, the equipment he would have used, uh, I'm reading again what's available online. Uh, we're looking at a Macmillan Tactical 50 BMG round. That has a range of probably about 7,000 meters, 6,500, 7,000 meters. So he's well within the maximum range, but effective range, I think no one really knows until you try. Uh, what's considered impossible today is only something we have not done yet and it becomes possible tomorrow, as we know from flight, from everything else that we've done. We've made tremendous progresses in terms of metallurgy, chemistry, technology effectively has gone forward. But the training is fantastic, too. That's the greatest possibility that you can have. The human brain is the greatest piece of equipment in the world. Hmm. How would you train someone for this? Uh, that, again, you'd have to ask the military. Uh, their training techniques are their own and rightfully so i don't think they should be you know broadcasting them everywhere yeah but canada has uh had a history of being involved with firearms and weapons for since the dawn of time since canada began and it's always been for peaceful purposes such as this to you know reinforce whatever canada's goal is would this be one shot i don't know i did not see that online uh, if it's one shot i say congratulations uh sometimes it's two shots uh, one to gauge where it's going, the second one actually lands where it's supposed to. Wow. There's a quote from this article. When you're sitting here at a shooting range with a rifle at 100 meters looking through a 15, 14 or 15 right. uh, scope, you can actually see your heartbeat in That's the crosshairs right. because your body is translating it right to, uh, to the sight system. And that's only 100 meters, not 3,500. Right. Explain that. Okay. Uh the scope will magnify everything by the power of the scope. In that case, it was 14 power, as we saw in the article. So your movements, your your physical movements, because we all we're not a, a like a rock that just sits there. We are all trembling at some point, even minutely. So your heartbeat is magnified 14 times. You can actually see everything in the scope moving, and you have to account for that. And most of these uh, very well trained soldiers are trained to shoot between heartbeats. So there's no movement as such. You minimize your movement by training to shoot between heartbeats. So you have to manage. If you run up there and placed yourself and it's 130 degrees out there, you're very warm. Your heart is beating to keep you at a normal temperature inside your body. You have to reduce your heartbeat as that, much as you can. That's training. That's my next question. So if you had to do this on the fly, once you drop that piece and you're, you're lining up to, to take your shot, mm -hmm. do you have to bring your body into a, a, a space where you can shoot or can you just shoot being on instinct, so to speak? Do you have to bring your body down, that adrenaline down, that heartbeat down in order to take that shot? You have to bring it down as much as your training has permitted you to do. Mm -hmm. And these guys are very well trained to do that all around the world they are. But our Canadians are seem to be pretty much the best there is at this point. Yes, you have to bring yourself down. Uh, is there a common denominator in sharpshooters, people who are good at this? What, what kind of person is great at this? Uh, my experience has been uh, they seem to come out of everywhere. Uh, all types of people, 
those who have concentration that can actually concentrate their minds on that, empty your mind of everything else around you, that takes training also. Uh, but there seems to be an innate talent in some people, and I've seen it everywhere in 47 years I've been looking at people in the firearms community and uh, military people I've known here in the States and other places. They seem to come out of nowhere, and they seem to have that certain ability to go, I like to do this, I'm able to do this, I'm very good at this. And then they take the training and become what we see today. It almost, uh, and this isn't a comparison, this is just all that I can think of right now, it almost reminds me of a hockey goalie in the sense that it can be an incredibly high-pressure situation. It is. And yet there just doesn't seem to affect them. It just, uh, you know, think about how... Uh, over and above the skill, the training, everything that these people have gone through, to then drop them into an unbelievably high-pressure situation like that to be able to perform. How difficult it is it to remove yourself from the situation, get into that body, and doesn't matter what's going on around me, I'm going to make that shot. I think each person handles that separately and differently. Uh, however, it takes, as I said, the training. Uh, and it's a lot of training, but it's a lot of self-training. It's not that you're going to go in a classroom or be told what to do by someone else. You have to actually do it yourself with the help of your buddies, with the help of the instructors and other people who have done this before you. But all they can do is pass on to you what they've done, and then you have to modify it to your own abilities and your own particular way of doing things and getting that shot out. Because as I said, once you pull that trigger and the bullet leaves the barrel, you have no more control. You might as well light up, quote, a cigarette and Mm -hmm. wait. Because there's nothing you can do at that point after the bullet leaves the barrel. Well, at 10 seconds, you'd pretty much have time to do that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, pretty close to it, yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. But it's absolutely fantastic. You talked about how things like the curvature of the earth, the temperature, uh, all those things are uh, play a factor in this. And we were just discussing about looking through, uh, you know, a scope that magnifies it 14 or 15 times. Right. Does that... Does the intensity of that scope, does that allow you to factor in more of those things because you can see at that distance, you can feel things like that? One of the major issues with looking through a powerful telescope at that distance is the mirage from the heat waves. We've all seen that in the summertime. You look across a field and it seems, everything seems to be wavering. Right. Uh, that mirage is magnified that you don't necessarily see with the naked eye, or you might see a bit of it, is magnified by the power of your scope. If your scope is like 30, 35 power, uh, that mirage, which is heat waves of moisture, of dust in the air, is magnified 30, 35 times. And your target seems to waver. It wanders back and forth. You have to figure out where the target is and then aim at that particular spot that you want to. Uh, How how will this... uh person's life change with this will it all will we will we know who this person is i don't know that the military if they have you know half the intelligence i give them credit for and i know they're pretty good at that they're not going to say yeah uh i don't think they should uh maybe down the line because i know they've named the person from england and they named of course chris kyle in the states who was Mm -hmm. uh did a famous shot. Uh, it was one of the best snipers there ever was. But the sniping is not really that as such. It's making sure that your people are protected. Uh, it's not anything else but that. You're trying to do a job that the soldier on the ground can't do. Mm-hmm. You're placed in a higher position. You're placed where you can actually see this person is going to do some serious damage. And your your job is to take that person out once you've received the instruction to do it. Is this shooter any different than his peers or the people who he trains with? Um, 
would he now be the best or is it you know they're all the best it's just this, best. it's just this guy hit the target from an incredibly far distance this soldier did what he did and maybe tomorrow next week next month someone else will do that uh he is one of the best uh it doesn't mean the others are not they obviously are because they're getting the job done for canada would that uh would this be a confidence builder or would this add pressure because now all of a sudden oh let's get jim we know what he can hit you go up and do it and then the pressure is to do it again uh, each time you're going to do something, as you said, is going to be a different situation. There are no two situations which are really the same. Uh, I think that they take it in, you know, in stride, uh, and they know that they're working as a team, and that they can't really do the job as well as they did if they don't have the support of, that, of their teammates, their spotter and the others that are with them. How does the rest of the world view this, do you think? I have no idea at this point, except I think they're looking at it and going, you know, that's a pretty damn good thing as far as I'm concerned. And I do believe that people feel that way. What do you think, how do you think the enemy feels about this? I mean, I mean, because that's got, wow. I mean, from three and a half K away, you know, you might as well just pack up and go home. Yeah, but when you're out there, you, I don't think our soldiers think about who is going to take a shot at me as a Canadian soldier because they have their own, quote, snipers, mm-hmm. counterinsurgency. Yeah. Uh, how good they are or not is immaterial. The thought is always there that the next bullet could be aimed at you. So you can't really go out there thinking, I'm going to get shot, I'm going to get shot. You go out there and you do your job. Hmm. Like when we drive a car, we can all, we're always subject to maybe potentially having an accident because of someone coming out at you know, left field and hitting us. We don't think about that. We just think about driving and watching our surroundings and making sure that we do the best we can. And I think it's pretty much like that. How much, uh, when you're talking about weaponry like this, uh, how great is the technology? And has the technology made this sort of thing possible? The technology has, quote, made possible what happened a couple days ago that was announced. But uh, the technology has been improving so very much over the last uh, century that if you look at what was done a hundred years ago, you'd say, my God, that is, uh, that's pretty good for the time. But back then they had the highest level of technology available to them. Today we have the highest. In a month from now, in a year from now, it'll be even higher. So there's no boundary really to this. I don't know if that answers your question, but there really is no boundary to this. Do you think most Canadian? Do you think most Canadians would be surprised that someone has hit the target at three and a half k? From my experience, I think that most of them would be not just surprised, but really, really pleased with the way things are in this country. Uh, so you said that this weapon has the capability of shooting something, uh, shooting a, a, a bullet 7K. Yeah, uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be its effective range. It, right. That's pretty much how far you can throw it. Because that, that particular, uh, any rifle is a miniature piece of artillery. Uh, the bigger pieces of artillery that fire 14 miles and all this, uh, that's another story, but it's just a grown-up version of what's yeah. been shot. Uh, yeah. Again, once it leaves the barrel, there's no control over what happens. It is not a guided missile in any yeah. way. Mm. It just goes. So uh, how much, in your estimation, would it have slowed down at 3.5K by the time it hit the target? Would it be much? Uh, yeah, I'd say at least two-thirds, but I haven't done the calculations. Wow. I'd have to run it through the calculator, through the computer. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Uh, Steve Torino has been with us, President Canadian Shooting Sports Association, talking about the Department of National Defense has confirmed that a Canadian sniper has beaten the record for the longest sniper kill shot in military history at three and a half kilometers. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for the call. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.